Hello, everyone, and welcome back to When Movies Were Good with Rachel and Matthew down here in Melbourne, Australia, still in lockdown. Matt's about 10 kilometres away from me in his home. I'm in the resort studios, a.k.a. my small flat. Matt, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I can't believe we're uh, Skyping uh, still for our podcast, even though we're that shorter distance apart uh, as if we were on the other side of the planet. But glad we had this technology when it works so we can keep up the podcast. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we have we've um, taken to recording remotely in the mornings because at night the bandwidth um I'm not sure if it's my side or whatever. We just can't seem to get the Skype working at all. Uh, it's because the kids trying- don't watch actual television anymore. It's all this streaming kerfuffle <laughs> and it takes up all the bandwidth. That's true. We literally, or I literally, can't get on at night in Skype when it's that sort of main part of the night where everyone's watching Netflix and all the rest of it. So uh, sort of sad state of affairs, but that's fine. We're probably a bit more bright and breezy in the morning. So, Matt, just quickly, did you want to run everyone through? We're doing um, not Dracula versus Frankenstein, but Dracula and Frankenstein um, starring Although the that great... would make a new movie uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I wish they'd get the Universal Dark Universe going again. I think they've tried and failed, but that's fine. Um, so, Matt, did you want to just run everyone through our social media just really quickly and we'll get on with 1931's Dracula and 1931's Frankenstein? Yeah, no worries. So we have our usual social media channels. There's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at When Movies Were Good. You can now get this podcast not only on YouTube, as we've always been on, but also now on proper pure audio streams, so Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And although you can't do it on Spotify yet, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us reviews. And so if you do have the chance to put your mouse clicker onto the five-star confirm, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps us get in front of more people. Yeah, definitely. And thanks to Matt for all of his technical know-how. I uh, wouldn't be able to do quote this podcast. Quote. <laughs> wouldn't be able to do this podcast without him. So big thanks to Matt. So we're going to jump right well, into it. Um, I was joking around that I chose these films because they were released the year that Larry Hagman was born. Let's just get that right out of the way to start. We'll start off with that, and then that's out of the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. These two films and the stories themselves, so Bram Stoker's Dracula story, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which were written in the 1800s, I'm correct in that, Matt, aren't I? They were very, very old books. Yeah, um, so Frankenstein, that came out of, I want to say about eight, oh, no, I I think I mixed, I was going to say 1813, I think I'm mixing it up with Pride and Prejudice. Um, Let's see, Mary... Look, uh, 19th, yeah, 19th century, the, uh, the audience doesn't need to hear us Googling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the books came out. Uh, let's have a look here. So, yeah, Dracula was 1897, written by um, Bram Stoker, Abraham Stoker, and then Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and I think that was even before that. Sorry, there's so many dates and times with all of these films. Sometimes uh, the novel by Mary Shelley was written even further back than that, I believe, or 1818. So these are really, you know, in terms of modern literature, they're really old books and they had to wait, you know, for films and the technology of films and all the rest of it. So we're going to discuss Dracula first because that came out first and paved the way for Frankenstein essentially. 
So there had already been a, was it a German expressionist film, Nosferatu, in the 1920s, which was heavily, borrowed heavily with Max Max Schreck, I believe, in the role of Nosferatu, which is just another word for vampire, I guess, in their vernacular. And that film in itself definitely has uh, a part of cinematic history, although Bram Stoker and his, I believe his family weren't too happy with that film. Were, were they, I think they were sued and copies of that film were destroyed. Obviously there's ones that still exist, but the first Dracula that everyone is mostly familiar with is the great Bela Lugosi, the, um, who actually Lugosi is a surname taken from the area uh, of, uh, of Hungary that he was born in. Um, that was the town uh, and that's where he created his stage name, Blasco. It was Bella Blasco was actually his actual name. So I like how a lot of these older actors just decided to reinvent themselves and give themselves a brand new name uh, that fits in with their sort of horror, horror roots. So um, we have Dracula 1931. So let's just go briefly, briefly, briefly. For those of you that aren't aware of the story of Dracula, and this um, version of Dracula, I don't think there has actually ever been a definitive version of the book of Dracula. Every single version of Dracula that's come out uh, has borrowed bits and pieces from the book, but essentially then crafted their own version of the story. So Transylvania, which is located in that area, uh, I guess you'd say, yeah, what, Hungary, Romania, that sort of area, Locals warn Solicitor Renfield against going to Count Dracula's castle for business reasons. They dread that a vampire lives there. But Dracula, the vampire, disguised as a driver, takes Renfield there. And then from there, they end up over in London where Dracula meets somebody he falls in love with, I guess you could say. Matt, what are your thoughts on this film? Well, I thought it was just really enthralling. I was uh, hooked on it very quickly. What excites me during this podcast is that as you go for all the great movies is that you uh, get to familiarize yourself with all these iconic moments of popular culture. And so later in the Frankenstein, we have the uh, it's a live routine with the corpse being revived in Dracula you have one of those uh, core introductions of uh, such an iconic cinema character and Halloween and Halloween costume, because I think that really uh, Lugosi's performance really solidified uh, what what we see as Dracula. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, in both of the original books in Shelley's Frankenstein and in Stoker's Dracula, both Dracula and Frankenstein are described differently. But I think the the costume design, uh, Jack Pierce's costume design for Frankenstein, and then um, the costume design that they used in Dracula as well, it's just spot on. It's just what we need to see. So, you know, Bela Lugosi himself, who had been playing Dracula on stage, obviously he was an immigrant himself and he that was just the sort of roles he fell into, you know, when he arrived at Ellis Island and he got involved with the Hungarian community in theatre in New York City. You know, by the time he arrived, his accent was pretty much solidified. He could have maybe changed his accent, which some actors from overseas do now when they go to the US, like Charlie Theron and uh, 
um, a few other people as well. I'm thinking of some Australian actors that have done that. Uh, but um, that was one of the roles that he went for. So this film, Dracula 1931, is based off the play, which is based off the book. So they have taken their own artistic licence with it. But essentially what what Dracula tries to do is you have to feel something, you have to be interested in Dracula. And I think if they were, he was portrayed the way he was written in the book, it's a bit like Norman Bates in Psycho. The audience isn't really going to be interested in what he's doing, whereas with Lugosi playing him, there's an authenticity there because he's from that area of the world. But also he's a good-looking man in this cape and why wouldn't a woman be in love with him type thing. So that's the artistic licence they took with the film that I agree with. Uh, what are your observations on the film, Matt, like in terms of the way the film was shot, the story that they went with? Well, it impressed me with how relatively little special effects and complex editing, they um, created such a haunting story because many of the core scenes with Dracula, he is completely motionless. Like, uh, and most of the main special effects to yeah. uh, create a, uh, the effect that he's doing some sort of vampire magic, as per se, is to see his sort of little spotlights glowing on his eyes. Uh, one critique in one scene, uh, they haven't quite aligned it perfectly. You could sort of see it shaking a bit, but... You you know what we'll uh, we'll 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 forgive them for that one. Um, the the bat where that shows him to be taking form into I thought looked a <laughs> bit a bit tacky. I'd have thought um they could have actually taken a leaf out of a lot of the German cinema, which was where the a lot of the iconic Dracula imagery came from originally. And for example, they could have had the woman lying in the bed and maybe just a, a very convincing shadow with crisp lines like fluttering over her. That would have been a lot, a lot better, I think. Less is more, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to that uh, uh, model. I, I love how in the both these films, uh, also you have um, established the the Dracula's castle and later uh, Frankenstein's laboratory, and clearly it's done in, in a studio backdrop. But it, it, it's like looking uh, back at King Kong. Uh, you 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 find ways to be completely taken away by the theatricality of the background drop. Yeah, no, I agree. And both of these stories, at least the stories used in the film, in the films could easily translate to stage because while it was sort of um, groundbreaking at the time, for us now to put something like that on stage, it would be quite sort of straightforward for a bunch of theatre technicians and theatre designers to do that. So I wish we'd actually see these, well, whenever they can, return to the stage. I'd love to see both of these productions on stage. Um, look, Dracula would I, have been uh, quite I, easy to do on stage, I think, actually. With... Yeah, I would have. Uh, I wish there was some sort of recording or, of his performance on stage as Dracula. I mean, it was the role he was born to play. I mean, really. And I can't believe they were actually thinking of other people to do the role and not Lugosi you know, he sort of campaigned for it while he was touring with the stage play. He was in California and said, hello, what about me? And they're like, uh, no. And then eventually he got it. So um, we had, we had, who else did we have in this? We had David Manners. We had Helen Chandler. Um, Matt alerted me to the very sad story who played Mina, the very sad story about Helen Chandler's life, that she was already an alcoholic when she made this film and basically got severely burnt 
she got very badly burnt because she left something in her flat going when she was drunk. And I think she was you know, smoking just, in bed and she just fell asleep. And that, that used to be quite a common accident. Yeah, and that was really, really sad. And I was also reading that apparently she was already really struggling in this film as well. And I didn't actually know that Bella Lugosi had suffered from really bad sciatica that had affected his career, not to mention the fact that, you know, as Fred Gwynn once said, you know, about playing Herman Munster, it was the best thing that could have happened to me and it was the worst thing that ever could have happened to me because essentially you're typecast and that's what people, I mean, look at people like Adam West and stuff, what happened to them in their career and they were quote-unquote serious actors before they played. Me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad when you sort of read the trajectory of these people's career, whereas Boris Karloff, who we will discuss a little bit more in a minute, he seemed to still have quite a flowing career, but a lot of people were like, well, Lugosi was sort of a one-trick pony and Karloff had a bit more depth to what he could do. He was a bit more well-trained. I don't know whether that's um, that's fair enough. I Vincent, love the Price was, Vincent Price was lucky because he did get – uh, stuck in a lot of vampire roles, but he managed to get further into the mainstream. It was a, such an irony because he had such a successful career, but he kept pulling back by this corny studio who um, had the rights to the this particular series, and they just kept guilting him like, you're going to put all these people in the unemployment line if you don't do this crappy movie again. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to read about that. Yeah. I always thought you know, just Vincent Price was just a, yeah, this, yeah, I mean, obviously had a tradition with horror. But um, so Todd Browning directed this film and he had come through the silent film system, the vaudeville system as a child. He'd uh, been an actor himself. Actually, I love the projection. And then this film, Dracula, was based on the play by Hamilton Dean and John Bolston. So there are differences between this. Obviously, the way that Dracula is portrayed in the novel is different to the film, but you have to make it more palatable for the audience. Um, and also just the trajectory of the story with uh, Mina and Renfield and the characters are sort of swapped around and Van Helsing, I think, still fills the narrative role that he does. But, you know, often they make changes to make the film a bit easier to understand and a bit more palatable for the audience. Sometimes it's just not going to work trying to convert. I think they were saying that Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula was the closest one to the book. Um, and I just, every time I see Gary Oldman in that, I'm just like, uh, have you seen Gary Oldman's um, uh, makeup in that film? Matt, have you ever seen no, it? No, I, I haven't, seen, I haven't it. seen that film. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture Commissioner Gordon in a vampire movie. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and obviously John Carradine came and played Dracula after Bella Lugosi did in some other films and um, I think he'd initially turned down playing Frankenstein or something as well. But, you know, he had the moustache and he was a bit more Vincent Price looking and all the rest of it. But to me, Bella Lugosi is the ultimate Dracula and just the beautiful production design. I mean, even when Renfield first goes to the castle and there's all those cobwebs everywhere and the light space. And I know that, yeah, the bat was a bit out there and some of the lights in his eyes and things like that. And, um, you know, I think, you know, they said that he didn't have a lot of uh, depth as an actor. Perhaps that's why his career never went anywhere. But he was sort of behind the eight ball. He was an immigrant. He spoke with a thick accent. Really, he was... Um, Whereas I think Boris Karloff, because he'd been trained in a different way and come into Hollywood a bit differently, 
I think uh, I think he was just able to sort of parlay that into a few a few more things. Although he was kind of typecast playing, you know, in horror films as well. So ultimately, Dracula is just one of those films you need to see. It's just if you're a lover of film, it's it's uh, one of the films you need to see. There's a lot of other versions. There's the Hammer horror versions of Dracula. There's other Universal Dracula films, and Bela Lugosi himself did play Dracula several more times. One film I do want to see him play Dracula in is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I think it is. <laughs> the last time he plays Dracula is in that film with Glenn Strange playing Frankenstein. That and, would be um, an interesting turn of events. <laughs> and it just looks hilarious. Like it just looks really out there. I mean, anything with Abbott and Costello in it, it will. So I actually want to watch I might watch that tonight. It just looks hilarious. And I'm interested in Glenn Strange's performance as Frankenstein as well. So Dracula 1931, beautiful film. Uh, Bela Lugosi is stunning in the film. It's, uh, you know, it's also dependent on whether you like the story as well. I always, I just think Dracula could be even more simplified down. But a lot of the traits of Dracula that we know, the cape, the hair, Dracula not going out in the sunlight, Apparently in the, in the original book, Dracula could go out in the sunlight. So they've obviously taken artistic liberty, but I think Nosferatu started that. So, you know, it, it works for what it is. I now, love the part of the cigarette case. Yeah, that's right. And also the piece of um, cardboard stuck over the lamp in the bedroom. Did you see that, Matt? Do you notice that? So no. in the bedroom where where if you go, if just after we get off, just look it up online, there's a piece of cardboard stuck on the lamp in the bedroom um, yeah. where one of the ladies is sleeping. And at that, obviously you're so like looking at Lugosi and all the rest of it, so you're not really concentrating on that, but it's there. It's this piece of cardboard and it just doesn't make any sense. It's like what is that doing there? But in the script that it got cut out, for whatever reason, or in the editing process, the nurse had stuck the cardboard over there to protect, um, I believe it was Mina's eyes from the harshness of the lamp, but still having some light in the room. But because they cut that part of it out, there's just this piece of cardboard stuck over the lamp. And everyone's like, what is that? And they just didn't really notice it in terms of continuity or anything. So it is supposed to be there, but it's not, because the part that makes it make sense is cut out. Well, that's a fire hazard. I mean, if the vampire didn't get her a, a bedroom fire, uh, would have. Oh, I just thought. Um, considering what happened to her a few decades later, a bedroom fire joke probably isn't the best thing. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, the ending of the film is a bit abrupt. Uh, and he sort of, I guess, he dies off screen, does he? I, I, I was sort of like, I went back and rewatched it. I'm like, oh, she's all right. Mina's all right now, and. He obviously died off screen. <laughs> I maybe would have done the ending a little bit differently, but um, you know they're just paltry little issues. It's not. It's not going to detract from. Um, but it's such a beautiful film, and Bella Lugosi is just such a striking figure, and he was the perfect person for the role, and he's the only one I really want to see in the role. We jump over to Frankenstein, released later that year, 1931, starring, was it William Henry Pratt, a.k.a. Boris Karloff, who changed his name just because he thought it would be a little bit more theatrical and a bit more cinematic. I think both those names could count as theatrical. 
Yes, definitely. So once again, we have, let me just jump into the notes for that one. So once again, we have, and essentially Frankenstein was released off the back of the success of, uh, of Dracula. Um, both, you know, came out later the same year. And I guess for some people it even eclipsed the success, uh, universal success with Dracula, and I guess the audience wanted more. So director James Whale directed this one. He Apparently he had a shot at directing pretty much any uh, novel that they had procured the rights for, and he decided to go with Frankenstein. Uh, there is a sequel to this film starring Boris Karloff as well called The Bride of Frankenstein. People might be familiar with that big hair job that the bride has in it. So we've got Colin Clive in this film, who another sad case of someone who was an alcoholic as well and led a terrible life, uh, English actor who played Victor Frankenstein. Um, and then we had Dwight Fry. We've got Mae Clark playing Elizabeth. Uh, and we have, uh, let's see here, Dwight Fry was playing Fritz. But, of course, this film really sort of centres around this person who's animated so let's go into a brief explanation of what Frankenstein's about in case you don't know. Essentially, Dr. Frankenstein is an obsessed scientist and he creates a living being from various stolen body parts, not realising it has a madman's brain. So there are differences from this one to the book. What were your initial thoughts about this one, Matt? Well, one of the surprises about Dr. Frankenstein himself and I had the same experience when I studied the book in high school is that the stereotype is to think of um, this uh, outsider professor as being quite old, but he's actually extremely young, like in his, um, uh, like he's sort of at graduate student age. So um, I, I mm-hmm. like we've heard of um, getting a bit too obsessed with our graduate dissertation, but this is a whole new extreme. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I love that movie. It was um, it was so thrilling um, when you're in the castle and the corpse has been animated and, uh, like, you'd think, what could be the more tackiest thing possible to do than to impersonate a undead person learning to walk the first time? But uh, Boris Karloff, he did such a great job. And the sort of the showing of how this uh, fairly neutral expression is learning the ways of the world, like learning things about, but but also like that, even though he's supposed to have a criminal brain, they don't really play that out so much. It's more that um, you have an innocent mind sort of uh, learning to, uh, to trying to learn to interact with the world and sort of not quite knowing the consequences. For example, there's the scene with the little girl and, just the that long distance shot of seeing the girl playing in the lake just with some flowers and the haunting experience of oh god you know something really bad's going to happen and then Karloff comes out and like he has no sinister intentions he's like literally just learning to play and he doesn't mm-hmm. think any different of throwing the girl into the water like it's uh, some part of a game and like when you think of it when we're kids we probably do quite rough games all the time we just don't realize how dangerous they can be when we're taller yeah (laughs) yeah so um the movie and the play i guess from that matter because this again was based on a play rather than the book as such but the play was based on the book um i'll i i actually 
liked Frankenstein because it was quite just simple and to the point and he creates this creature and the creature sort of, you know, um, doesn't realise that the, the brain that was stolen was a criminal's brain and very easy to follow and, you know, the tragedy of uh, this being coming into, you know, I'm not really sure where the film was supposed to be set. I'm thinking it was set in Germany or something because everyone's wearing lederhosen and stuff like that. But everyone yeah, spoke with Austria, an English accent. Maybe. Yeah. Well, the, so, the book just, was um, set in Switzerland, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, but apparently in the book he spoke more and he had more skills and there was definitely, um, you know, undertones and Dr. Frankenstein and his whole family were, you know, affected by...
54. And also A Touch of Evil, which is a film I've wanted to see for a long time and one of Matt's favourite films, Orson Welles. Marlena Dietrich's in that film as well, and that's 1958. So that'll be a good one to do. Yeah, well, it, I'll uh, always enjoy uh, having an excuse to rewatch an Orson Welles movie. <laughs> that's right. You're, Matt's a really big fan of Orson Welles. It's just, I mean, Orson Welles pretty much has your idea of a perfect career, doesn't he? Going from the stage to film. <laughs> uh, stage. Wasn't so- 